We are back for another episode. And today we have Dr. Patty Ann Ford with us. Dr. Patty Ann, I'm so excited to be able to welcome. We're going to dive into picky eating. So have you ever had concerns about your autistic child's eating habits and wondered, how do I seek support? And is this something that rises to a level where I do need to seek some sort of medical intervention? And so that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Dr. Patty Ann is a registered dietitian, and she is going to share all her expertise with us. She also has a PhD, so we'll hear a little bit from her all about her background and how she works with families. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental mindset coach specializing in autism. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. I'm the host of Evolve, the podcast where we have real conversations that are designed for autism parents just like you. Each week, we will discuss topics that directly impact your life, from providing psychoeducation about autism and neurodiversity to talking about your personal growth, well-being, and evolution as a parent, we dive into it all. Just keep in mind, nothing shared on this podcast is clinical advice, and you should consult with a medical or mental health provider if you need support. Now, let's get to talking to Dr. Patty Ann Ford. Welcome, Patty. So excited to have you here today. Yes, thank you so much. I'm excited as well. I love listening to Dr. Tay's podcast, and I love being her friend and colleague, so I'm excited to be here. I am. I'm really excited for this collaborative conversation today. So tell us a little bit about you and your background. I know I gave a brief introduction, but give us the lay of the land here. Sure. So I have been a registered dietitian for about two decades, and I have both clinical, academic, public health, and now private practice experience working with all different types of people in their medical goals with nutrition therapy. I finished my PhD in preventive care and I focused on food and mood and how food makes you feel. And I fell in love with the eating disorder community and just really dived into that community with how people eat. And I have both clinical at a high level experience treating eating disorders with the treatment team. I live in Southern California. So where I practiced was Loma Linda University for about a decade. And then there was a need in the community for private practice setting. Cause when you have someone receiving high level treatment, then going home and kind of navigating that experience, I opened up my own private practice and I've been full-time private practice for about two years where I've opened another layer of coaching where I'm able to kind of similar to Dr. Tay, have these concierge services where I'm able to use my education, but in a much more colorful way and step into, for lack of a better term, just a coaching aspect where I can use the research, but then also really dive in at a really deep personal level of what's happening for them and their relationship with food and body. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I want to point out, it's pretty unique, your training, having this eating disorders training. And we're going to talk a little bit later about ARFID, which we commonly see in autistic children and you having experience with that. And so I'm really excited for you to be able to share your knowledge with this community. So let's start off though, before we go on to the ARFID side, 
let's talk about picky eating. It, it sounds weird, but let's actually define what picky eating is as a starting point. Picky eating is very loosely used as someone that has a like small selection of food. The reason being texture or taste or exposure or comfortability, whatever it be. And one of my favorite kind of paradigm shifts is a lot of times people will label or identify someone as a picky eater, where if you kind of take a step back and say, you know what, they're experiencing pickiness around eating, because if you label them as a picky eater, that becomes their identity. Mm. And then they're limited in kind of their exploration with food because they think, oh, well, I'm just a picky eater. So I'm not going to try that versus, well, right now I'm experiencing pickiness. It just kind of shifts their mindset a little bit. Wow. I love that perspective of this idea of identity. And it's it's so true. I talk about it in other aspects of sometimes we label ourselves like quick example, like, oh, I'm such a perfectionist. And it's like, you live up to that. You almost prove that to yourself versus I'm having habits of thinking that are perfectionistic in their tendencies. And that, that sounds like such a nuance, but I also think it's so important, the language that parents are using around their kids, because kids are taking everything in. And I just, I want to point this out, it's important regardless of your child's verbal ability. The language you're using is incredibly important and they are still hearing that and they are owning that as their identity. So right away, starting off with a bang. It's similar to therapy settings where people love identification and sometimes over-identification. It's similar to your relationship with food and body where I'm a vegetarian or I'm a this or I'm that. And so especially with picky eating, and if you're wanting to make some changes, shifting the language to it's their current experience right now, it doesn't have to be their identity. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think on the parenting side of things too, if you're assuming your child is a picky eater, then are you exposing them to the foods? And it, we know that exposure is really a key piece. So I'd love to go there, but I do also want to say, and I want parents to hear this, we're not saying that your problems are going to be solved today by simply shifting your language. There are some kids that are truly, truly picky eaters, but we want to help cue you into different elements. So talk about, yeah, some of the parental mindset around picky eating that you've seen working in this field. A lot of times with picky eating or experiencing pickiness, there's so much anxiety, frustration, rigidity, because kiddos usually are not doing their own food attainment. They're not meal prepping. So it lays upon the family, whatever the family unit is. And so that your one child will have meat, the other child will not. The one child likes spicy, the other child will not. So typically as a parent, it's easy to just say, well, I know they're going to only eat white rice and edamame. So I'll just make that for them. And then I'll, I'll be kind of a short order chef. And that just keeps the peace. <laughs> so I get it. I'm a mom of myself. I have a very picky eater experiencing pickiness. And so it can be really hard to try to challenge. I'm going to use that word, the status quo when it's just easy and the routine is easy, but then it can be frustrating when you're in social settings and you don't have white rice or you don't have this, and then you can lose the homeostasis, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I think it can be so hard. So what would you say though, 
I, I definitely agree that some of it is just like status quo. It's easy. You have a rhythm, which then isn't changing your child's behaviors because we know we have to change the environment and things in the environment and the cueing in order to get a different outcome with your child's behavior. What would you say though to the opposite side where it's like this parent is so desperate to be able to get their autistic child to be able to eat more and they are totally on board, ready to change, ready to do anything that you would say. What would you, where would you start? So this is where I would ask the parent to step back and sit back and say, okay, is this your relationship with food, your relationship with your body that you're trying to impose on the child versus is the child medically stable? Is there picky eating? Is it really okay? Are they able to function relatively? Are they able to kind of go through their daily life? Are they medically stable in terms of their weight, in terms of their heart, in terms of their health? And the picky eating is going to be their experience. And if it's inconvenient for you, there's a conversation on what is what your goal is versus what the child's goal is. So I think it's still taking a step back and saying, what does need to happen? Is the picky eating something that, but maybe people just don't like skins on the hot dog. (laughs) Maybe it's, that's really actually just a preference. It's not picky eating and it doesn't need an intervention. So that could be the first conversation. The second conversation If there is an agreement that this is a very picky experience, exposure in a very safe environment would be the next goal is how can, as a team, either the family unit or involving medical professionals, how can we expose new foods in a very slow, safe manner? I think that slow, safe manner is so, so important. I think sometimes parents hear exposure and they're like, I've tried that, right? I've tried to introduce. And it's a really systematic process. So can you talk a little bit about what that exposure process, just give an intro to what it could look like? So a lot of times if it's a new food, the new food is scary, unsafe, I don't want to experience it. And then the brain goes to, oh my gosh, this is so new. I don't want it out of my routine. I'm going to kind of totally close off. When you're in that state, nothing is going to sound good. There's no enjoyment of food. Why would I want to try that? Gross. And you literally can't force anyone to eat. So the first step is going to be just to have a conversation about it. What would be some new foods that you're willing to try? What would be something that we could just put on the These are the foods that are safe. These are foods that are unsafe. And then what's in the middle? What would be some foods that we could just have a conversation? I'm not making you eat them anytime soon, but what would be something that you're even willing to think about? And just planting the seed in the part of the brain that could just say, okay, maybe that's not completely off the unsafe, but maybe willing to try. And there's no date, there's no making them do that, but okay, I'm willing to try green grapes. I'm willing to try eventually green apples. And that's it. Say, okay, great. We made a list. And then just brainstorming a list. Yeah. I love that. And then in the application, then they identify these foods. What's that next step? The next step would be, all right, I would want to know what's the environment like and how are you going to try it? So is the environment, are they sitting at a table? Is it safe? But then you have to take a step back and say, okay, well, how are you eating meals in the first place? Is the family unit eating a meal together? Because if the family unit is not eating a meal together, 
sitting at a table is going to be a whole nother new paradigm shift too. Mm. And so when you're introducing the foods, making sure everyone feels safe and then having that supportive person, whoever's assisting this, eating the same food with them. So again, that's going to check the supportive unit, their relationship with food. Are they okay trying the pasta with the child? keeping their relationship with food separate and just really modeling that this food is safe and this is a safe thing to try together. Yeah. And I want to emphasize that part modeling, right? We talk Mm -hmm. a lot about modeling on this podcast and how modeling is a highly, highly effective way for any children to learn, particularly though, autistic children seeing it over and over and over again. And so- Mm -hmm talking about as you're modeling, what is your language? How are you talking about the food? And then I also think from an exposure standpoint, because exposure also can be worked on things like with anxiety specifically, although we could argue that some of this has this anxiety component and maybe we can go there in a second. Mm -hmm. But also then Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times parents go right to, well, you need to eat the food. You have to actually like put it in your mouth and try it. And there's resistance to that. And so let's chat through, I know you and I have had this conversation on the side before about exposure in a different way of being able to support different senses. So there's something called the cephalic phase of digestion. So the cephalic phase of digestion, you actually smell the food, picture the food, touch the food, taste it, not actually chewing and swallowing. And that can actually have, you see a lot of mindfulness therapy or intuitive eating, but for someone that's just has a lot of resistance against trying something, even just, but I've done boiled eggs before where boiled eggs are really easy to make and to travel with. They're a great protein source, but the texture and everything is a little challenging. So this family, we just looked at the egg. We looked at the egg, we cut it open, we touched it with our hands, we smelled it. We described it in color. We were like pretending if you could describe this egg in all of your senses, let's do that. And it took 10, 15 minutes. And then we put the egg away and it was like, that's it. We're not trying it again. So then we exposed again. And then maybe the family unit and maybe the medical professional tasted the egg in front of them. And we gave them the option. Would you like to try? No, 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 no. Okay. Not trying yet. Then we come back next session. We do the same thing modeling, exposing the egg, the egg is safe, all this stuff. Would you like to try? Everybody else tried and no one was looking. And then the child tried in a very safe, like, okay, I can do it. They can do it. They felt safe enough. We've talked about it. It's planted in their brain. And what can happen is a lot of times with ARFID, which we'll talk about, there can be a fear of the gag reflex where they're afraid of that gag reflex, which is, can be very fearful because you feel like you're out of control but it's also letting them know that that actually is an okay response and nothing, typically nothing will happen. And there can be different responses that too, but just exposing them to how the body can react to some things that you don't like. Absolutely. So we talked a lot about kind of making the assumption in our conversation that this is a verbal child where you're able to go back and forth. You're able to work collaboratively. Mm-hmm. You're able to brainstorm. Uh, I also want to emphasize though, that 
you can do this even if your child is non-speaking. Maybe you have a toddler or you do have an older child who's non-speaking. I mean, absolutely can use an AAC device as part of this collaboration and making the list. But if not, even doing things like you modeling it or having them just touch it or put it to their nose, things like that, like you still can do these processes regardless. I don't want you to take from this episode, like this only works if your child is able Mm -hmm. to collaborate with you. Mm. And that could be even maybe before dinner, trying one new food on the list and just modeling and doing the senses without verbal cues, doing the touching and the feeling and the smelling. We've even listened. Does the egg make any noise? And it typically doesn't, but you can do different things. I think of like a child's museum where there's so many different things that you can do without talking. And Mm. you can make that with the food where It doesn't have to be the expectation is they're going to enjoy this fantastic dish that you made of a crock pot with all these different sensations and colors. Probably not. It might just be one apple and it's green instead of red and they're afraid of green and you don't know why. And it's like, let's just back up and let's just have an experience with this apple that's really simple. As simple. I'm hearing you say simplicity in when you're picking your foods too. And we often see, just to point out, and we can, again, I keep saying we can talk about this, but (laughs) there's often a sensory element to picky eating. One of the Uh things I actually learned this from a parent in my Facebook community had, I believe an OT tell her, sometimes too, some food is more predictable than others. Like an Uh apple, every time you bite into it, it has that same crunch versus something like mashed potatoes. You might get a chunk in one bite. You might not get a chunk in another bite. Uh And then also we see that sometimes the mixing of foods is really difficult. So not Uh starting with something in the crock pot and starting with like one solid item. And think of like cherry tomato. It's firm and you bite into it and all of a sudden the texture changes. And so a lot of texture in foods, keeping things to think of, I'm going back to, there's something called the dysphagia diet, where when you have problems swallowing because of different reasons, there are some really cool tools. If you were to literally Google dysphagia diet, everything is fluid or everything is solid and the texture of the food is similar. So you could get some really simple ideas of snack foods, hot foods, cold foods from a dysphagia diet, which is a a different medical concern, but you can use the recipes. (laughs) Oh, that makes sense. Cause yeah, it's predictable. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's actually talk about kids that you're not able to collaborate with. And in the beginning of the episode, you talked about taking a step back and asking, is it your goal or is it their goal? What do you recommend a kid that like, and I hear this quite a lot in my like diagnostic evaluations where it's like they will eat no fruits and vegetables. Maybe you'll get like one protein and then otherwise it's like more carbs or chips, things like that. So where a parent is concerned about the variety of food, what do you recommend in that situation? So variety is a great goal. And I feel like it's kind of the top tier. If you're kind of looking at a pyramid, Variety is going to be one of my last goals. Like, are they getting their medical needs met? Are they sustaining whatever is their, is their basic needs? Are they showing up and you can tell that they're fed? You can tell that they're fed. You can tell they're sleeping. 
And then maybe, all right, are they eating three times a day? How's their digestive system? Evaluating what's the best way to intervene. Variety is always one of the last goals. It's okay. always one of those like, okay, that may or may not be the focus right now. And then kind of exploring if the variety means we're just trying to introduce more micronutrients, that's when maybe it depends upon the age supplementation or doing some sort of like smoothie or using like a powdered supplement in the pancake mix, something where you can not sneak. Cause that sounds, I don't know, non-integrity filled, but sneak the protein <laughs> or the omega-3 fatty acids or the powdered greens in something that you're already preparing. And then you're, they're getting it, but variety is always one of those things like, okay, maybe we'll work on that slowly with exposure, but that's going to be really hard if they're having a lot of sensory picky experiences. And so it's just kind of taking a step back and say that might not be the forefront of the goal. Okay. And that might not be their story. They might be sticking to five or six foods until they're ready. Let's move into the intervention side of things. So talking about feeding therapy. Before we talk about, I want to talk about when it's necessary, when you should seek that out, but let's touch on how do you know whether to go to feeding therapy with someone like you versus going to an occupational therapist? So occupational therapy, I think maybe they're having a hard time plating their food. They're having a hard time holding a spoon, but asking for money or kind of whatever this like rotation is with the hand. <laughs> just trying to navigate their proprioception with the food, making food, kind of that. Feeding therapy, I would see, okay, the child is having an emotional reaction to food. There's a lot of anxiety with food. They're having a gagging reflex with the food. And then that's limiting their, their choices in food. The picky eating has now moved into, it is actually causing a problem with our family function. It is causing, they don't eat when we're out, when we're on vacation, they eat nothing, but they can plate the food. They can prepare their own food, but it's three foods. And so that's when I would step into this ARFID diagnosis where ARFID stands for avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, where the pickiness is a very clinical level where it's actually impeding the socialization and the family functioning of the unit. Yeah. And I think a lot of times families of autistic children don't even realize that there could be a potentially separate diagnosis for mm. the child's picky eating. Like, cause in the autism world, we hear a lot about picky eating is very, very common because mm. of those sensory elements. I also think, and this is why I wanted to ask this, OT is also great for broad sensory exposure and all of that. But feeding and eating, yes, some OTs help with this. But if you have the ability to go to someone who provides feeding therapy, that would be like the top level of care. So real quick, before we go more into ARFID, who does feeding therapy? And what would people search if they want to look for someone who does this? I would think a dietitian that does specialize in ARFID or eating disorders. And so if you have a dietitian without that certification or specialty, they definitely are going to work on, are they getting all of their food groups, all of their macronutrients, but then the actual of how to eat might be lacking unless actual provider is going to take a personal interest. But I would be looking for someone that does ARFID disordered eating and kind of takes a stance on that. 
most pediatricians are going to have some sort of resource or access to feeding therapy. And I, I've heard you say that a couple of times and I'm, I don't think I've used feeding therapy in my vernacular too much. It's mostly how to eat or meal support or meal strategies. And so I like the vernacular feeding therapy, but I don't think that's what I would use for my practice. But I think yeah. it's, it's just, just terms or jargon. <laughs> Absolutely. And I've gotten that from parents that I've worked with that are, yeah. and it could be something like the way that it's coined in the autism field. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So I have worked with families of autism and a lot of it is there's so much history and dynamics with the family unit. So it simply was going outside of the family unit, feeling safe with the medical provider, exposing. I've done work with families for a year. I've worked with families for six to eight weeks and it's, oh, I can feel safe with the food and then transferring that back into the family unit. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that's helpful to think about that this is a whole family approach. It's not going to be your child just showing up and they're going to teach them how to eat, right? It's a yeah. willingness of the whole family, you know, to get on board where even some of your other children might have to change some of their behaviors. For example, if you guys don't regularly sit down as a family to eat and you're kind of, uh, what is it called? Like you're, you feel like you're a, a line cook where it's like this yes. orders up, this orders up. It might be a whole family shift where you do start sitting down because then yeah your autistic child is seeing everyone else eat, that's modeling right there. Yes, and I will say it is so hard in this time of our lives to have everyone sit down at a table because there's so much stimulation going on. And sometimes having the child watch their device or the screen outside of the table without the family unit actually is what is helping the family unit to function. And so now it's kind of like, how are we supposed to reintroduce that? It's not as easy as we'll just sit at the table and eat all the same foods that can be, that can cause more upheaval than solutions. So that might not be what your family needs as the next step. Absolutely. And I always say, communicate with your provider, right? You're yes. always welcome to go do an intake with them, talk about the approach, ask what they would suggest changing, but also don't yeah. be afraid to be like, listen, here is why right now this isn't going to work for our family. Are you still able to help me? Or is this something that I need to put on the back burner? And like have yeah. that open conversation. Yeah. I've worked with families where the family did sit down at the table and the child still went to her room, still ate. Are you doing okay? Are you eating the foods that you're asked? And then the family checked in and she did finish her meals and she worked on exposure that way. And so that was that certain family's dynamic. So sitting at the table just didn't work. It was actually more stressful, which is okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's dive into ARFID. Let's talk a little bit about what this looks like, how a parent might know, like, hmm, is this something I should look into further? So I know you introduced ARFID, but talk a little bit, yeah, about what the presentation of this looks like and how it's different from what we typically think of picky eating as. Yeah. So ARFID is Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, and it's it looks different in everybody, which I know when you said that, like, what's the presentation? And so I've seen it in as young as five or six, which is, it's hard to diagnose before that because there's still, there's so much going on after five or six, you start to see a little bit more independence sort of with food. They start to kind of regulate their hunger and fullness cues typically. And I've seen it as, as mature as 45. 
And so it can present in a large range. And I know our audience is mostly children, parents of children. And so it can be this picky eating where there is a lot of emotion dysregulation at the table with food, where there is severe avoidance, severe reaction to say you're making breakfast in the morning and you know they like ham or eggs and you make eggs a different way. And there's shutdown, resistance, a lot of emotion. And you're like, okay, it was just eggs, right? That's kind of your experience. But for them, it was life or death. It was this reaction where I possibly can't eat anything the rest of the day. And then they're avoiding food. Then there's this reaction where, okay, they're losing weight there, or they're not growing as they should, according to different growth charts. And so now they're falling behind and how they should be progressing in their medical health. There really is this significant impairment, which is necessary mm-hmm. to diagnose any disorder. It's got to be really impairing. The DSM-5, which is what we use to diagnose, so ARFID is actually an eating disorder. It falls under that. But like you're saying, Patty, it's like the almost like failure to thrive. Maybe that's not quite the right word, but not gaining weight as expected, all of that. But then also like over-reliance on nutritional supplements, like if that's Mm -hmm. your child's entire diet and significant nutritional deficiency. So it's got to be to that extreme. Or, and you reference this, this, this impairment on the family or on their functioning on a day-to-day basis. Like it could be so severe, they're not eating a lot and then they have low energy throughout Mm -hmm. the day. Well, I've seen it where families try to go out to eat, which is a very normal functioning for a typical family. And the decision of where to eat depends upon the child. And then that throws off the rest of the family's functioning. And that consistently happens. Or there's a dramatic reaction to the restaurant because they don't have the exact rice or the exact bread. I think of emotion. So I think ARFID is going to be, there's, there's this sense of, lack of safety with the food. Yeah. And I actually, in my clinical training at Duke, had the opportunity to get trained in ARFID. And I remember this patient literally could only eat this one brand of bread. And so the parents would literally drive around to different stores looking for this brand of bread because that was her safe food. Like, And so I also want to point out that sometimes You might be like, no, I don't think this is that severe. But then asking yourself, are you making so many accommodations for Mm. your child's eating habits? Or maybe you're even avoiding going out because it's so distressing that it's not worth it. Or like I said, like going above and beyond in order to meet your child's diet. Yes. And so I think it comes to like what also the parents willing to kind of accommodate to. But I like to think, say the child is verbal and is able to communicate. If they were to go to, this is a little bit older, a friend's house, how would they be at a friend's house with their food selection? If that's one of the first things like, oh, I'm not sure what my child would eat. I would say there's definitely experiencing pickiness where they don't have the flexibility to navigate. Again, this is a little bit older. They don't have the ability to navigate their food selection without this extreme accommodation. Yeah. And one of the patients thinking back actually wouldn't go to peers' houses Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. of the unpredictability of food, right? Yes. Yes. So I've worked with a male teenager who wanted to start dating 
And he was social, very social, but he started to realize I won't be able to go out on dates because I'm not sure what I'm going to be able to eat. And that experience was extremely anxiety provoking. And so he began to seek out treatment on, I don't know how to do this because he wanted to experience another part of his life. And so the exposure at a facility with medical professionals was very, very successful. Yeah, absolutely. So what will be my term that I hear in my community? what, What will feeding therapy do? Like what's a general approach? What can a parent expect if they're pursuing this type of treatment? So hopefully the goal is exposure and hopefully the goal is providing some flexibility and less rigidity around food while navigating their emotions. So typically a response to, oh, well, just eat it just eat it, right? There's this kind of invalidating of a very traumatic experience for them. So they're going to be surrounded by a lot of validation. We get that the eating experience is extremely difficult and we want to talk about it. We want to validate it. We want to provide this in a really gentle, safe manner. And so a lot of the times it can be in a group setting or individual. It's this experience of, oh my gosh, this really is hard for me. Thank you for validating this. How can I move forward safely? So a lot of times that's from a dietitian point of view, we do want to make sure they're medically sound. We want to make sure they're getting all of their macro and micronutrients. And typically if they're walking and talking and emoting, they are. However, sometimes we can assess for maybe some bone deterioration or for females, any type of reproductive functioning. And so it is making sure that they're medically safe enough to move to, okay, let's expose the variety of food selection. Absolutely. So before we wrap up this episode, I'd love to talk about you and your practice. I'm sure there's some similarities, but what exactly you do and what types of families you work with, as well as how people would connect with you if they're interested in getting support. They really resonated with what you're saying. They need more support. How do they go about seeking you out? Yeah, the easiest way to contact me is through a phone call or an email, and I have assessments that they can take, and then they can schedule through Calendly themselves, or they can connect with me, and I typically like to just do an explore session and say, how can we work together? What are your goals? Maybe you have no idea that you have goals, and so it's just kind of exploring what that looks like or what you're looking for. I do take some insurances in the state of California, so if you're local in here, but I do have patients outside of insurance nationwide. And I have families of kiddos as young as six or seven, and I work to individuals on their own or with spouses or partners up to the 80. And so it's kind of a a very wide range, but typically in session, we will talk about food, how you're eating and how it makes you feel. And I like to navigate that depending upon where you are with that, there can be a really sensitive area of food because it relates to how you were raised your culture that you were exposed to, how you sense your body. And so there can be some really sensitive terrains that we can navigate, or it can be very transactional where we're just kind of looking at meal plans and we're navigating how that works for you. And we go to the grocery store or we navigate, well, I didn't know that protein powder could go in that type of recipe. So there's lots of different areas to go. My favorite is working with people who are chronic dieters 
who really just want to redefine their relationship with food. And that could be a mama of someone who is trying to navigate a really, really hard diagnosis of autism. And all of a sudden their relationship with food is being exposed and it's hitting all the nails in their head. And so they feel like, okay, this is, feels very chaotic for me. I'm going to make sure that my diet is perfect or my body is perfect. And then that modeling is then put on the child and it becomes super messy. So, Yeah, I love that you said that piece at the end because I was actually going to bring that up. We've been so Mm. focused. This episode has been on talking about your autistic child, that you actually doing some self-exploration as well. And one of the things I do talk with parents about is like, I don't have the best relationship with food. So what am I modeling to my family? Mm. And this podcast, we really focused on the child today, but is all about supporting your whole family. And so mm. I, I was going to say, Patty, that you would be the perfect person that if someone is looking, a parent is looking to redefine their relationship with food. And I love that example you said of like, okay, you get this autism diagnosis, you're processing it. One area you might try to be having control in is your diet because it's predictable, right? You're able to control that. You're not able to control the unpredictabilities that often come with an autism diagnosis. So yeah, connect with Patty. I will link everything, her contact information, all of that in the show notes so you can reach out to her and have conversations about all of this. Yeah, yeah. And I think One last little piece, the maternal influence of the family is so powerful. Mm -hmm. Even if you're not using words, how you view your body, how you view food is modeled for everybody. And so it is something, whether it just be a session, even with Taylor or me, just to give space to look at is so important from my perspective. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And what's interesting is as a psychologist, like I talk about food, but this is often one of the things that I'm referring out. Like I'm not afraid to be like, listen, this isn't my area of expertise. Let's bring someone on. And I, I feel like someone like Patty is a great collaboration in that sense. So if you have amazing autism providers, but you're still hearing this, reach out, have a conversation with Patty because she might be able to support you in a way that you're not currently getting from your child's team. Yes. And so I feel the same with even just being on this podcast with you, Taylor. I'm like, okay. If there's a couple things, I'm like, I've referred a couple of families that I have been working with where I know the mama is really struggling And so I'm like, I need you to go talk to Taylor. I would love for you to have a conversation with her. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I love it. Collaboration. Well, before we wrap up, I just want to make sure, I know we've talked about so much in this episode, but anything else that as we were talking, you're like, I want to make sure to share this. I want to make sure parents hear this. I think just the theme that keeps coming up is your experience matters, your kiddos experience matters, and it's not oh, just a little thing. We don't need to talk about anything that pops up. If you're listening to this, bring up to someone in your life that can hear you and support you because your experience with your food and your body does matter. Boom. What a great way to wrap up this podcast episode. So that is a wrap of this week's episode of Evolve with Dr. Tay. Thank you for listening. If you find yourself listening to these episodes and finding value, come join the Evolve Facebook group. Each week, I record podcast episodes live in that community and host a Q&A after each episode. 
You get access to engage with me, plus you can connect with other like-minded autism parents. It is a community designed for you to feel seen, heard, and supported as a parent of an autistic child and introduces you to my whole family approach. The group is linked in the show notes. I will be back next week with another real conversation about all things autism and your family life. Be sure to hit the plus or follow button in the podcast platform that you are listening to right now. This will notify you when the next episode is live. Catch you all later.